0: Today on the show, we're featuring an interview by Sean O'Leary. Uh, he took the time to spoke to UVic alumnus Catherine Pendrel, who claimed bronze in her mountain biking event at the 2016 Rio Olympics. Uh, we've also got Miles Sauer here in the studio from the Martlet to talk about uh, various UVic news and events. We're going to start off, though, with a piece by one of our uh, other correspondents, Miyoko. Uh, she's back this week with a theme on homelessness. She met with the director of Us and Them, a film featured at Cinecenta last month during Homelessness Week, and Dr. Bernie Polly, a researcher specializing in homelessness, poverty, and addiction at UVic.
1: Well I had been to Africa, Zimbabwe when I was a teenager and I witnessed poverty there that I hadn't experienced before and it was something that just didn't leave me and I wanted to go back, I wanted to do something to help the impoverished situation.
2: Hello, everybody. This is Miyoko speaking to you. This was Krista Lauten right before the screening of Us and Them, a film about homelessness which Krista produced and co-directed with Jennifer Abbott.
1: The opportunity didn't come up again for me to travel that far, and I realized, you know, I don't need to go overseas to help people. I just need to go downtown. So I quite literally went looking for the people that were suffering the most in my community and i met four outstanding
2: individuals i just need to go downtown some people out there go right ahead and connect with people in need and in pain regardless of their own biases regardless of their own heavy feelings yes it's painful to witness such poverty and distress right outside our homes in what we used to proudly call developed countries. And there's fear, guilt, powerlessness, and then we look away. But some people are showing that there's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing that we're going to lose by giving to someone in need. And there's no guilt when we feel compassion for someone. How did you meet them, exactly? Well, at the time,
1: I read about reverend al Tisick in the newspaper so reverend al's a very popular street preacher here that works tirelessly for the homeless and at that time it was 2006 and he had been named one of canada's top 10 heroes by time magazine so i went looking for him and i found him at the drop-in center it was uh, on Johnson Street at the time, the Our Place drop-in center, and I just started spending time there, hanging around, getting to know people, and the four participants in the film, we just essentially gravitated towards each other. They they were just the ones that I
2: developed the strongest connections with. So you, you went at the drop-in center uh, and just hang out there? just talk to people having small talk or conversations
1: or I just spent time with them so I would and I wasn't I guess you know yeah I'd make small talk or have coffee but a lot of times I was just observing just sitting watching observing people and then you know yeah having conversations and chit chats and it's pretty easy to get into you know when you're just there to listen people like that they like to to talk. So that's how I I met the four. And then things just evolved from there.
2: It sounds like it would take a long time to get the trust you were talking about from these people for you to film them. How did that work?
1: Well, it was always a film. So they always knew that it was going to be a film. And by the time we really turned the cameras on and started doing the work, like I had known each of them for 2 years, more than 2 years actually. And a lot of the things that come up on camera are things that with like conversations that you know, we had had, we were close to each other and there was a a good bond and I think trust between all of us. So it really wasn't you know what, it's actually kind of remarkable none of them were camera shy or you know, not want, like, they were all really into it. They really, like, I remember especially one of the characters, Danelle, that she just really wanted to get the truth out there, like no sugarcoating. Like, those are her words. I don't want this sugarcoated. I want to show it as it is. And so some of it, like, it's a very intense film. They They are also very funny people. Like, there's a lot of good laughs in the film too, but it is also really intense subject matter. Because we don't Really hold back.
2: One of the many things that struck me in the film was the wisdom that the people who have been going through very, very difficult situations were expressing. I have to say that near the end of the film, I felt very humbled and moved by what Donnell had to say about carrying on no matter what. Dr. Gabor Mate, who is an addiction and mental health specialist in Vancouver, makes it clear in the film that all these people you see in the streets have been abused, and this is their response. What do you think about that? Is it true that you were not welcomed by your father or your mother? Was there violence? Was there fear? Was there anyone who helped you, or protected you? Would you say that home didn't feel like home? That you never really had a home? Is it true that you wanted to destroy yourself? Did you find comfort in drugs, alcohol, or sex? Do you feel like anyone has ever understood you? Thank you. Good news, and her name is Dr. Bernie Polly. She's focusing her research on homelessness, poverty, and substance use at UVic, the University of Victoria,
3: Canada. What drew me into homelessness was um, my background as a nurse and seeing people um, who were without basic kinds of resources, you know, in terms of a, of a, of housing, of a place to live, and just seeing firsthand how that impacted their health. And, and then I think on top of that, the difficulty that they often had accessing health services, because people were often, um, you know, didn't have transportation, or they, were trying to get a shelter bed for the night or um, they just felt like they wouldn't be treated very well um, if they came to health services. Um, So it definitely drew me to say, well, as a nurse um, in a country where we actually are have a lot of resources, how can this be happening? and I really wanted then as a researcher to try to understand what is happening and why is this happening and what can we do about it. And so I wanted to do research to really be able to um, bring forward those perspectives to impact policy. And so what did you find? Um, I think what I've, Found over the years, because I've probably worked about ten years um, in the field of homelessness, is that in Canada we've um, decreased how much money we invest into social housing. Um, we've changed um, federally um, the social safety net and the you know ability for people to have an adequate income and you know those are the conditions that many people find themselves in um on top of the fact that they may have experienced um abuse mental illness difficulties um with with family conflict. Like, you know, it's very individual, the pathways by which people come into homelessness. Um, you know, for youth, it's often related to family conflict. Um, there are many people who um, have experienced trauma and uh, abuse in their past. You know, that's highlighted among adults. And mental illness, because it's very difficult if someone doesn't have Um, they're not able to work and they don't have an adequate income to live on and we have a lack of affordable housing, then they are left in this situation where they don't really have a lot of choices to make about where they can live and and how they can live. And so I think that's probably been um, one of the biggest learnings is realizing it's the broader um, structural conditions and the you know, housing policies and income policies. And then on top of that, policies that criminalize people for, you know, some of the ways in which they're actually coping, like substance use and maybe the sex trade, for example.
2: They don't really have a lot of choices to make. I agree with the fact that homelessness and addiction are manifestations of other root cause problems to address. So I was seeking somebody who could tell me what kind of support, other than providing housing and basic income, would make the difference in helping someone to get out of the homelessness vicious cycle.
3: Homelessness itself is very traumatizing. People look down at you, it's demeaning, you don't have enough, you know, all of this that happens to people. People also then need supports. That can help with recovery without expecting them to um, be abstinent, without expecting them to behave in certain ways, but probably recognizing what are the supports that this person needs to recover. And when I use the word recover, what I mean is to be able to live their life in a way that um, is satisfactory to them and you know, that they feel that they're functioning and um, they may not ever overcome whatever conditions or illnesses they have, but they are in a state of recovery. So that would be like a goal, I guess. But that requires those foundational pieces plus supports as well. So it's... As you say, it's not as simple as just putting someone in a a house or a home. It's having a good house or home and having other resources and supports as well as needed with moving at the pace that's right for the individual. Hey
0: Blue, there is a song for you in Connipil. To feel it. Well there's so many sinking now you gotta
4: keep thinking you can make it through these ways
0: acid booze and ass, needles, guns and grass,
2: lots of life
3: So one of the projects I'm working on right now is um, uh, on evaluating managed alcohol programs, which are a combination of uh, some type of accommodation, um, psychosocial, other appropriate kinds of supports, including primary care, and then thirdly, um, they uh, help the individual with um, administering alcohol at regular basis. So many of the people that access the managed alcohol programs, they have long, long history of drinking. They've been through um, rehab and treatment programs many, many times without success. And we've had very good outcomes. Um, people keep their housing. People who have never kept their housing before. Um, their quality of life improves. Um, the harms related to drinking um, go down. So that's one positive story. Um, the other positive story I'd tell you, this happened in Victoria, um, because of the work to monitor uh, the cost of housing, the availability of housing, you know, um, the difficulties that uh, people on limited income would have, and some of our analysis of uh, the shelter data, really resulted in laying the groundwork for a decision by the crd uh, the capital regional district to develop the housing first regional strategy with an investment of 30 million dollars from the municipality and then with the actions and the work of people in tent city the tent city that was uh, in victoria um, the province contributed 30 million dollars so that's pretty significant and i think What's so powerful about that and why I think of it as probably, you know, one of the good news stories is that we laid the groundwork over many years to show the evidence and then people in Tent City spoke about their experiences and their experiences were directly aligned with what the evidence was saying it that there is no affordable housing and i think what they added to it was a really good understanding also of why some housing is too restrictive and what some of the challenges are in supportive housing so you know the lack of housing but then also what kind of housing and i think that's the next really important piece of the puzzle so um I mean, $60 million being invested in our community into affordable housing, I think that's a success. In Canada, it would take so little to actually um, address homelessness and the investment made by each individual is very small. And right now, we are in a time where we, as the public, can influence the development of a national housing strategy because the federal government is um, you know, committed to a national housing strategy. They've been asking for feedback on it, um, but they're also investing in um, housing and that's very different um, than what has happened over probably 20 or 30 years where we've had a disinvestment so it's a very important time for people in the public to talk to their um, member of parliament to um, indicate their support for an investment in housing and to develop the national housing strategy Um, and you know to let our government know that, yes, we want this. That's an act that people can do that's political, but I think there's another kind of act that people can do every day. When you walk by someone, just smile and say hi. How are you today? Or at least smile. That's, you have no idea what difference that will, it will make a huge difference in that, in that person's life. You don't have to, a smile is a gift. that that you can give someone every day. And sometimes, um, you know, someone might not want to make eye contact with you, and then you disrespect that as well, right? But the thing is, you've acknowledged them as a person, and that's the gift. So, do you
2: feel like going downtown, smile to someone, and maybe even have a conversation with them? I do.
0: thank Miyoko for that segment on homelessness that we just heard. If you have any story ideas, uh, please send her an email, Radio at gmail.com. Let's take a quick look at the weather. It's nine degrees outside the University of Victoria, and it's rainy. Uh, there appears a rain beginning early this morning. Clouds, winds southeast 40 to 60 kilometers an hour. Um, tonight periods of rain ending late this evening and cloudy with a 60 percent chance of showers it looks like it's going to be about that rainy for the rest of the week uh so don't uh don't keep your umbrellas a little too far from you just a few headlines here uh UVic recently renamed the Administrative Services Building the Michael Williams Building after a donor who, in the year 2000, bequeathed several very valuable properties to UVic, one of which includes uh, Swan's Brew Pub, and there was a dedication ceremony uh, last week. Let's move on to another segment here. This time by uh, Sean O'Leary, who took the time to spoke uh, to speak rather uh, to Catherine Pendrel, a Olympian. Today I am with Olympic
5: mountain biker Catherine Pendrel. Catherine is a proud Canadian who started biking at the age of sixteen. Born and raised in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Catherine came here to UVic to earn her psychology degree, which she credits for getting her start back in 2004. The three-time Olympian won her first Olympic medal in Rio 2016. It was a memorable Olympics for her because she crashed her bike early in the race and came from behind to win bronze. She has fought through severe injuries to her collarbone in the past two years. Despite her injuries, she won back-to-back world titles. Since 2008, she has finished in the top three at the World Cup standings almost every year in seven of the last eight years. The two-time world champ, also won gold at the Commonwealth Games in 2014 in Glasgow, and in 2015, she won her fifth world title. She is one of Canada's great mountain bikers. She now calls home Camelus BC and is proud to represent her country. Joining with me now is Catherine Pendrill. Hello Catherine, how's your day going?
6: It's going alright. Pardon?
5: It's an honor.
6: It's an honor? It's uh, it's pretty nice here in Camelus.
5: Sorry, I'm on a, a loud street. That's okay. Uh, let's introduce you to our audience. How did you get into mountain biking?
6: I got into mountain biking when I was 16. I was growing up in New Brunswick, and uh, I had been a horseback rider all my life growing up on a farm, and then my brother came home with a mountain bike, and he said not many girls were doing it, and I should give it a try.
5: That's great, yeah. um, Let's talk more about uh, your early success. Um, You graduated from UVic in 2004 with a degree in psychology. What did you learn from that?
6: Um, you know, I think uh, I did a, a, a joint degree in psychology and sociology, and, uh, you know, as that was right as when my interest in cycling was really peaking, so as I, when you're in a degree program, you're learning how to learn, and you're discovering what you're most interested in, and kind of by the end of it, I found that I was actually interested in perhaps pursuing physiotherapy, but in the meantime, I wanted to see where cycling can take me, and uh, that's where. I met my first coach was at, the, at UVic in the triathlon club, and uh, cycling just took off after that, so it was pretty easy to make that my, my primary focus.
5: Uh, talk about your experience at this great university. Um, what would you say about the professors and other students that you connected with?
6: I really loved going to UVic. I found it was a really welcoming community. I. I moved across the country from New Brunswick to Victoria, and I didn't really know anyone out there, and uh, definitely found this great niche, uh, really impressed with the program mm-hmm. and uh, the diversity and, and just the general uh, uh, culture on campus. Oh.
5: Yeah, you're, but you're born in Fredericton, New Brunswick, I and grew up there?
6: Yeah, I grew up in a small town just outside Fredericton, actually, called Harvey Station. It's more of a village, so very, uh, you know, very small school, grad mm-hmm. class of 40.
5: The East Coast is beautiful. It's got that feel of small town, and that's just one of the better uh, things to experience, I think. Um, do you have, what memories do you have of your great city?
6: Uh, well, I was actually just went back to New Brunswick last week, and... Uh, so it was really special because even though I had graduated from high school before the kids that are there now are even born, uh, I got this amazing welcome at the high school. I had over 300 people come out to okay. to see me and mm-hmm. uh, celebrate the Olympic medal with me. And uh, the town has actually named a multi-use trail after me, which is a really huge honor and just something special and and something that shows how when you come from a small town, people really get behind you to support you and are really proud of your accomplishments and so it was just so nice to, to go back and to be able to share a bit of my experience uh through three olympics
4: with them
5: mm-hmm. it must have been just so heartwarming to have that in your hometown um in your early days as a biker is there an experience that set you on way or helped to establish you as an athlete
6: um you know i uh was the very first bike race i went to it was a qualifier for the Canada Games, and I knew that I wouldn't be good enough to go to the Canada Games there, but I saw girls that were trying out, and uh, I just thought that would be such a cool experience to be able to represent your province and, and compete at a national level, and so that was really my motivation is seeing other girls out there doing it and, and what was possible and available out there, and so I think that really set the stage and kind of made me excited about where cycling could take me, and then every year is just a progression from there.
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you went on to have lots of success. Uh, you are a three-time Olympian. Uh, tell us about the 12 years where you competed in those Olympics and what the journey was like.
6: Yeah, um, so it's, it's been amazing. It's been <laughs> such a an evolution. Um, when I started racing back in 97, I guess, but it wasn't until 2003 that I, I got a coach and started racing at a national level. Um, and then... Yeah, just uh, to have the opportunity to go to Olympics and to perform. And uh, you, some the first Olympics was great. It was really inspiring. Uh, London was really tough. I went in as a medal favorite, and I, I came up short. And that was probably one of the more challenging things that I've had to deal with in my career. And so it was just mm-hmm. really amazing to be able to have an opportunity to go back a third time and to have learned from those other experiences and just have a really great race.
5: Yeah, totally. And um, obviously, Rio was where it came uh, together for you. Um, you won bronze early in the race. You crashed. You still yeah. made it to the podium. Um, yeah. Yeah. What did it mean? Did you achieve that after that? After the, all the hard work you put in?
6: Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I think that I definitely felt like I had earned every ounce of that medal, and uh, you know, you could look at it as like, oh, maybe like, what if, what if I didn't crash? What could have happened? But uh, that's not a big race, There's uh, that's sport. There's just so many different elements to it, right. and what it came down to is I was able to, to find the best that I had on the day and never give up, and I uh, just can, can, run away from that race, very proud of mm-hmm. what I accomplished.
5: Yeah, you dealt, let's talk more about your injuries, because obviously there's been a lot in your career. Uh, specifically, you broke your collarbone in 2015, or 2013 and 2014, and... Uh, you still went on uh, later in the years to win two back-to-back world titles. I talk about what training was like to recover injuries and how you inspired to achieve that.
6: Okay, yeah. Um, I guess the, the first time the, in 2013, it was a, a much more severe break and more soft tissue damage around it. So it was really challenging to come back from that, but I guess what it, an injury helps you do is just appreciate being in the moment and just giving your best in that moment and, after the London Games, that was a mindset that I really needed to embrace. So I think overall, getting injured actually helped my career because it put me back in the headspace of knowing that I wasn't 100%, but I just had to do the best that I could in the moment and to use that to keep uh, moving forward. Mm-hmm. And then in 2014, to break my collarbone again was really frustrating, but at least I knew the rehab time and I knew how to be a bit more patient with my recovery mm-hmm. and even with my expectations of races afterwards. and. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so at that that time it was much earlier in the season. That one was April, and I was able to win the World Championships that fall, which was a pretty huge for me.
5: Right. Okay. Um, you, you have so much success over the years. Um, you are a five-time world champion, in fact. Well, what is does that mean? To you?
6: <laughs> what? I'm a two-time world champion and then three World Cup overall titles.
5: Yeah, I counted those as <laughs> okay. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> in case can, I, I listening. Like yeah, I counted kind those of <laughs> as world championships. <laughs> but um, what kind of what does it mean to you to have that kind of success?
6: Yeah, it's a it's it's awesome. It's just something that my my coach Dan Pru, who lives in Victoria, um, and I have worked really hard for, and uh, you know, it's just something that makes you very satisfied with your career and, and confident in what you've done. And uh, definitely, I feel like there's still more that I have to do, but I also look forward to sharing um, from my experience with the, the younger, developing athletes in Canada.
5: Mm-hmm. And what would you say about your close partner, Emily Betty, and the relationship you have?
6: Yeah, Emily's had tremendous uh, improvement in the last couple of years, and it's been really exciting to see uh, Emily and i even though we're about 10 years nine or 10 years uh, age between us have actually been racing at the national level for the same amount of time just her and younger categories. Mm, so awesome. it has been quite fun to to watch her progress and and see how hard she's working for it and uh you know it's always tough when you're actually going head to head with uh, a teammate at a race but at the same time i think we can be happy for each other when the other is successful and uh but at the same time push each other to be better than we are.
5: Mm-hmm. What does it mean to you to share your biking experiences with her?
6: Um, you know, it's like um, you go to something like an Olympics, and then you actually get to uh, share it as equals, and uh, and we both had have had some good Olympic experiences. We've had some bad ones, and, and just to be able to, to relate to someone who's been in that same experience and to... And, uh, um, you know, I think it helps, too, to have two very strong women because we can kind of share the, the media load and that kind of thing and so that we can both be as focused on our performance as we can be.
5: Okay. Um, you're one of Canada's great mountain bikers. Um, what would you say about your time as a sports figure, theater career that makes you uh, makes your time put in worthwhile?
6: Oh, um, you know, I think whenever you're pursuing a goal and you've had challenges and it always feels worthwhile I, to have... Um, to challenge yourself and to be able to overcome those challenges and uh, to hopefully be inspiring people and connecting with people is, uh, is really great and uh, something that I look forward to continuing with the, the recognition that I've gotten through uh, some of those achievements, be able to be a voice in, in Canada for cycling and uh, just helping the next generation get to the same level I've enjoyed.
5: Right. What can mountain biking do for sports in Canada? And the country as a whole.
6: Uh, you know, I think it's one of the best the best sports out there. Obviously, it's uh, it's a lot of fun, and it's uh, something that you can do at any age. And uh, so, I just think it's a, a fantastic sport, and it's increasing the popularity of it, increases the amount of trails that we have available, and uh, and just a lot of positive um, health and uh, social benefits to to the sport in Canada. And and uh, I think. Letting kids know, too, that exposing them to more varieties of sports. So it's not just whether your school has a basketball team or a volleyball team. It's There's other things out there that are going to appeal to different people and something that they can excel at.
5: Um, let's go into that a bit more detail on that. Um, as an icon, uh, what do you hope athletes in this great country can achieve going forward?
6: Oh, you know, Canada's had huge success, particularly on the women's side. We've uh, been ranked number one in the world many, many times, Have had a... Have a Tremendous success starting with Allison Fighter back in the early nineties. And it's a definitely a tradition that we'd like to continue of always having a woman that is at the the top of pinnacle of the sport.
5: Importantly, uh, obviously that'll um inspire young ladies who want to become the next great athlete. What would you say um about to university students here at UVAC about the achievement of education?
6: I would say it's uh, incredibly important. I think anything that you are interested in, it's fully worth uh, putting yourself fully into. And even as an athlete, even though, um, you know, I have that that access for sport and achievement, having, uh, being in school, having a degree to rely on as well, and even taking courses, I'm taking a human movement course right now, and just keeping education current, always keep learning and progressing um, because, it's, I feel particularly as an athlete, really important to not put all your eggs in one basket. You want to, how you can be successful at something is It's not making it all about that sport, whether today was a good practice or today was a good race, because there's other things that you're good at. So making yourself well-rounded and making yourself educated and, and giving yourself all the tools to achieve what you want to in life. Mm-hmm.
5: I agree. It is really important to round out your game even though i hear a lot of athletes often say focus on your strengths um around a game obviously leads to more success what are you up to at the present moment and what are your plans going forward
6: yeah um so at the at the moment i'm just back in camos this is what we call our off season Uh, so it doesn't mean that i'm not doing anything it's still fairly active just training at a lower intensity level and uh and with more variety than i might in the summertime um i'll uh be here training through the winter with a couple trips to the coast just so when the snow hits here um but yeah i do have a a contract signed with my professional team uh, based in the u.s that's cliff bar so i have a a racing contract for the next two years so um yeah i'd like to get another world champ title
5: yeah are you um Thinking at all about going to the next Olympics?
6: It's, uh, it's hard to tell at this point. I, at this point, I just want to say to it year to year and see what my motivation and desire and, and life path is. Uh, definitely, I have the support to do that if I want to, but four years is also a long time, and the Olympics are a big energy investment. So, um, you know, at this point, I'm, I'm open to it, but I'm not 100%, so we'll just see where things go.
5: Well, uh, thank you for joining us today, and um, good luck with the mountain biking, and enjoy your time back home in Kamloops.
6: Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye -bye.
0: I want to thank Sean for uh, his interview there with Olympian Catherine Pendrel. And now I'm uh, pleased to be speaking to Miles Sauer from The Martlet. Hello. Hello, Hugo. Hello, Hugo. Yeah, sorry about that. (laughs) No, that was, that, was, that was all me. Um, so let's uh, start with what happened last night. As uh, often as there often is, there was a board meeting. There sure was, Hugo. Exciting. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the highlights? I realized here that it was Kevin Tubber's birthday. Yeah, you beat me to it. Oh. Um,
4: Kevin, it's your birthday.
0: Yeah, I won't do that.
4: No. Happy birthday, Kevin. Um, yeah, it was his birthday. Everybody sang um mm-hmm. that was it i mean it all went yeah. downhill from there yeah sorry to say
0: what are some of the other perhaps more more relevant things um, that happened last night they
4: <laughs> passed like uh like five pages worth of amendments to the uvss electoral policy
0: Woohoo. Mm-hmm, because over the last year um there's been some, some I guess, not quite infighting, but definitely uh, debate about very, very specific things. Yeah, I mean,
4: last year's elections were a mess. Um, mm-hmm. Reporting on that was just a big gong show, and like... The stuff around complaints and spending limits and who was allowed to do what was just such a mess. And so a lot of this policy from what I could kind of tell, and I'm just going to go off here, like a lot of it from what I could kind of tell was just streamlining and really clarifying the roles of certain people like campaign man, campaign managers, that's not the right word. I mean, there's, there there are amendments passed, like at the last board meeting too, like this has been a month long process. some highlights yesterday included, like, reducing spending limits, or not reducing spending limits, reducing ZAP
0: credits for candidates. Mm-hmm, yeah, so they decreased it from, what was it, $70 to 30 Yeah, and then they upped the amount that
4: you could spend of your own money, and some of it will actually like they up the amount that you get reimbursed at the end if you're not disqualified and the logic behind that was to make it easier for independents to run mm-hmm.
0: um, uh, and the the idea of that that zap credit is to print off stuff like posters right yeah exactly um what other <laughs> <laughs> what other changes are there? Uh, I see that there there hasn't been uh, anything to address the issue of slate-specific polling stations.
4: Oh, yeah. I, I kind of mistweeted there, if you're reading our Twitter. Mm. I was looking through it, and I'm like, hey, there's nothing here. Because last year, Woke UVic had their own polling station that people were like, hey, is this allowed? And nothing in policy explicitly said that slates could not manage their own polling stations. And so when i was reading through the policy really quick i didn't see anything that addressed that and when i brought it up it was pointed out that yes there is there is an explicit um part of the prohibited campaigning or yeah it's like one of the rules is like no fake polling stations
0: Mm -hmm. and it wasn't necessarily fake like you could still you could obviously vote but uh one of the things i was surprised about last year um was that it, it it it, correct me if I'm wrong, that it was not a disqualifiable. Yeah, no,
4: it wasn't. I remember last year, uh, Chief Electoral Officer Emma Hamill said, "You know, there's nothing in the policy that like explicitly says this isn't allowed, and so we think." But I mean, with like, all anybody, everybody could do it mm-hmm. technically.
0: But there are a lot of you know rules that um, uh, polling uh, polling staffers are informed about before they take on the positions, one of which is that they can't uh, advocate for uh, one slate over another. And to have a polling station that was run by, um, you know, a slate I thought was was really surprising and that kind of went against the spirit of that.
4: Yeah. And I think that's the kind of thing that you'd see people point at now is that it goes against the spirit of the election. And there is a clause in the new uh, electoral policy it might have been there before that said anything that's kind of seen to go against the spirit of the election as outlined in some other point um, that's like an offense I guess mm-hmm. um, and uh, and no more stickers yes yeah, I kind of got lost in the discussion there um, <laughs> <laughs> There, I'm not really sure if stickers are still allowed or not but like that was just another one of those little things that turns into a 10-minute discussion mm-hmm. um, and it was yeah like no stickers are allowed no alcohol and no styrofoam cups people are like well wait what about the stickers and it's like because they get stuck on things and facilities management doesn't like it um, but then there's also this thing striking like the whole list of permissible campaign materials and I think they struck that entirely because Kevin wants candidates to be creative and to limit them to a certain list limits creativity so mm-hmm. and, and did that pass? I think it did because it turned into one of those amendments to the amendments kind of thing. Mm-hmm. and by the end of it, I was just like, uh, I, I, so, was, I was a bad journalist.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so it might take a little while to clear up is what you're saying. <laughs> I think we're gonna,
4: I think we're gonna dig into it and like do an actual proper report because live tweeting was not really the best way to get that information across. Mm-hmm. But look forward to a super creative, rambunctious student elections this coming term and hopefully there will be no camp complaints because they also they like amended the definition of like malicious campaigning they just took it out oh and now it just includes like the legal definition of harassment because malicious campaigning used to be defined as just whatever can be seen to cause harm to a candidate and mm-hmm. they were like well if you lose you could then say oh you caused harm and i think that's kind of what a lot of from my perspective personally like a lot of complaints came down to last year was like oh you said this about our slate and it's like well yeah it's in your platform like they're quoting you Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's not harm
0: yeah so like last year uh there were at at least 14 complaints that i can remember uh we might be you know plus minus one or two there but there are certainly a lot lot more than uh in previous years like i've been on this campus maybe a little bit too long and the hasn't hasn't really gotten more than 10 usually but yeah um let's move on to uh, another topic that's sort of related to UVic but in the context of the uh uh the Canlit controversy that's happening right now. Um, for uh maybe fill people in for those who are unaware of what's uh what's been roiling Canlit this week. Oh, you want me to fill them in? Okay. I mean uh, I I can <laughs> let's do it together. All right, um, yeah. Yeah.
4: So last year, uh Stephen Galloway, Canadian author and also UBC writing department chair. Mm-hmm. Um was he let go last
0: year? Yeah, I mean. so like last year uh, he was uh, suspended with pay for allegations that weren't really uh, articulated by UBC. Um, but after a while, it had you know come to light that you know, the reason that he was suspended was for allegations of um, sexual misconduct and, and harassment. Uh, and he was officially fired this year.
4: Right. And that was before any proper investigation took place, as far as I know.
0: Uh, uh, there have been some stories, uh, you know, from uh, Campus Press, from the UBC, um, but nothing that had really like gone into detail. But over the past year, there have been uh, features in the Walrus and the Globe and Mail that have done you know, some further investigation into um, the things that he uh, is alleged to have done. Yeah. Um, UBC also commissioned a report by a retired BC judge, um, which cleared him of most, the, the vast majority of the allegations, but that report was never made public. Right. And so we fast forward to now,
4: mm-hmm. the last couple of weeks, there's this letter published. Um, was it last On, few weeks? Uh, yeah, it would have been in the last, in the last week. I yeah. Think, it yeah. was published online and it was signed by, hundreds of a lot of
0: Canadian mm-hmm. authors
4: and creative arts types. Um, um
0: yeah, it was uh it was penned by uh, author Joseph Boyden right. of 3 Day Road uh and it was circulated to a lot of Canadian literary heavyweights, mm-hmm. M- Margaret Atwood among them.
4: Yeah, David Cronenberg too. That was one that I saw and like, mm. he's a director. Yeah, yeah. Um but anyway, uh so like the pressure is kind of on now and this letter has come out and uh, what's happened now is that some people are saying this letter kind of takes the side of Stephen Galloway, in in a case of like sexual assault, where it's like some people are kind of reading it as like we be, like we support Stephen at the expense of these alleged.
0: Mm-hmm. Compl- um, the, I don't the, know compl- the word I'm the looking for is complain. Complainers, I think, would be the yeah. The um, it, in. Just to summarize, the letter itself uh, mainly calls for due process for um, the UBC prof in question um, because he was fired uh, without severance and there were never any charges laid. Um, But it's true that there has been, you know, reputational damage for him. But there's a whole other side to this, which is that a lot of um, other Canadian authors, um, Chelsea Rooney, uh, Sierra Sky Gemma, among others, you know, have said that um, it really uh, de-centers uh, survivors and would make people less likely to come forward because it's kind of seen as you know all these powerful Canadian literary figures um, rallying around another powerful Canadian literary figure. Um, yeah, you said it a lot better than I could have. <laughs> um,
4: and so, and now what kind of makes it local to us now is that there are a few UVic writing professors who have signed this, um, including Lee Henderson, Bill Gaston, Lorna Crozier, who's retired now, um, and there's a few more. Tim Lilburn. Yeah, Tim Lilburn. Uh, And so, yeah, we, uh, the Martill has just been kind of reaching out, trying to get uh, on the record a few of those profs just to kind of ask, hey, what are your thoughts? Um, The only quote I've kind of gotten so far was from Bill Gaston, who said uh what everyone involved in this has in common is that we all meant well and mean well and i hope that we can all learn from this situation
0: um -hmm. Uh, and so uh various figures have uh either added their name or removed their name in the past week Um, so the actual like list of signatories is kind of in flux based on I think a fair bit of uh, backlash on on Twitter and online. I think
4: it's being updated every 24 hours, something
0: like that. Mm -hmm. And there've been like dueling op-eds in the Globe and Mail and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Vice got in on it. Really? Yeah. I I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah. They wrote a summary of the whole thing
4: yesterday. They called it like the great Canadian media circle jerk of 2016 or
0: something (laughs) like that. Um. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, you spoke to uh, Uvic uh, writing chair uh, David, David Leech. David is that right? I did. I just spoke to him this morning okay. for his thoughts. Uh, and uh, what was the what was the gist of that discussion?
4: Um, he says the department here like doesn't. It's not really something that they're taking a stance on. Um, the Uvic signees are speaking as members of the literary community. Was what David Leach said. Um, but he said as an outsider, like there's this big. Uh, Vacuum of facts where nobody will really know like the big picture of this whole thing until the grievance procedure is over And that might not be until like April or May. So until Mm -hmm. then like a lot of people are just kind of Left in the
0: dark. Mm -hmm. And a a lot of this uh, is due to the fact that the the report um, By this BC retired judge was never made public, but the information has kind of come like leaked out in, in drips and drips and drabs um do you see any, like, I don't know, Is where do we go, go from here? I don't, I don't know. know. I mean, I've been made aware of a few
4: student concerns around problems having signed imagine. it. Yeah. yeah, and when I brought those up with David Leach, he said that he has a complete open-door policy, literally and figuratively, and that if anybody has concerns, they can talk to him. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise, yeah. Leech also kind of acknowledged that the letter maybe didn't have the intended effect, given its timing and its uh, wording. But,
0: yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Anything else that we can look forward to next week that you've got uh, working Uh, away on?
4: We have... It's our holiday issue coming up. Oh, yeah. It comes out the 1st of December, so... Oh,
0: yeah, that's coming up. I keep forgetting.
4: Get that festive stuff out, because
0: we're kicking the season into high gear i guess i don't know i don't have much else to talk about well look for that uh next week miles thanks so much for joining us always a pleasure uh that is it this week for you in the ring katie sage is up next with in Rainbows. I am going to uh, leave you with another track here. This one is by Johns and it's called Trip Ads. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I want to thank my producer Liz MacArthur and if you have any news stories or tips uh, please email her at spokenword at cfuv.ca. Have a great Tuesday. (laughs)